Welcome to the Brewers Journal podcast. I'm John Young. We're living in strange times. Let's be honest, this is a challenging and testing time for beer, and we're all having to work our hardest to sustain the sector and ensure that it gets through this period even stronger. But lest we forget that beer is not a new invention, it has seen and overcome its fair share of problems and hurdles and challenges over the millennia. Wars and disasters and times of prohibition have been swept aside. Beer and the fantastic industry responsible for its production isn't going anywhere. So it's only fitting then that we look at one brewery that has stood the test of time. Founded more than two centuries ago, we're talking about Harvey's Brewery in Sussex. Harvey's is truly a brewery for all seasons. It exists within that special sphere that commands admiration and respect. If you're a beer lover, then more than likely you will love the beer produced by Harvey's. And under the guidance of Miles Jenner, head brewer since 1986 and joint managing director for nearly 20 years, the Sussex-based brewery has demonstrated staying power without ever compromising on its principles. In this podcast, recorded at the Brewers Congress in November 2019, Miles says we should all adapt to circumstances and the changing pace of the industry. However, we should always seek to accommodate and preserve what is dearest to our hearts until circumstances conspire to bring them back into vogue. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been given a brief, I take my watch off at this point so I stick to it, to speak for 20 minutes on staying relevant in a changing industry. I've been working as a brewer for over 40 years and what you will hear is a personal perspective. It is not particularly profound. My life in brewing covers more than 60 years as I grew up alongside Harvey's Brewery. I am descended from a long line of brewers dating back to the 18th century. Jenner's South London Brewery had been established in 1830 and was sold in 1938. My father had found employment with Harvey's as a newly qualified brewer and was then called up for military service at the outbreak of war in 1939. He returned in 1946 and was promptly made head brewer as his predecessor was now long past retirement age and couldn't get away fast enough. <laughs> the picture of Harvey's that you see behind me was taken in 1957. We lived in an adjoining house and the brewery yard was my playground. My cricket ball was responsible for at least one of those broken windows. One Sunday while we were playing, an open sports car swept into the yard with two young men and their female companions. One of the men got out, looked up at the facade and declared to the others, well, it definitely was a brewery, but I don't think it is now. <laughs> My father assured them that it was, and after he had entertained them in the sample room, they left with no doubt. The 1950s were a very uncertain time for family brewers. A bit like pubs today, brewery closures were a regular occurrence. Pub estates were the raison d'etre behind acquisitions, and neither the individual breweries nor the brands were a consideration. 
Economies of scale were all. Now, this had one advantage for those determined to remain brewing. Breweries were gutted of plant, often at scrap metal prices, and the sites were sold. It was a good time to re-equip, and my father once described himself as a voucher hovering over the funeral pyre of defunct breweries. He bought well and ensured that Harvey's was fit for purpose. We're still brewing in the mash tun he acquired in 1954 from Page and Overton's brewery in Croydon. He described himself as the sole brewer in a sea of scrap metal dealers at the auction and was in hot contest with an adversary for the mash tun. And having reached the princely sum of 200 pounds, his adversary swore blindly across the floor, telling him that he'd never place it, he'd never get the scrap metal value for it. At which point the auctioneer intervened and said, gentlemen, I would have you know that Mr. Jenner is not a scrap metal dealer, he's a brewer, and he wants the plant to brew in at Lewis. And there was a stunned silence, and the same voice said, well, that's different, mate, let him have it. And we acquired our master. As I grew up, uh, he would take me along with him. He was an incurable romantic, and I was infused, or rather infused, with his love of brewing. If we found ourselves in a town that boasted a brewery, he would wander in and ask if their head brewer had time to show us round. Invariably they did, and we would finish up in the brewery sample room. Now I soon realized that beer was a very broad term, and that regional variety was glorious in its diversity. When we went on holiday, normally camping in the Cotswolds, the sense of arrival was not the rolling hills, but rather the fact that the pub signs read flowers. Their Stratford-upon-Avon brewery produced sublime beers that we would enjoy for the duration of our stay. We actually stayed in a, a village outside Stratford called Tiddington, and my father had bought a load of ex-war department tentage, so we lived in 180-pound and mess tents, bell tents. The problem was how you got everything up there for this three-week holiday. Uh, the solution was found within the brewing industry because there was a marvellous sugar merchant, F. and J. Kendall, in Stratford, who operated from the Old Flowers Brewery, and they produced marvellous brewing uh, syrups, Avona, Nut Brown. So he would put an order in for sugar the month before we were due to go, uh, and they would take the tentage back up to Stratford so it was in a barn when we arrived. It was a very civilised uh, operation. Visiting the Donington Brewery at Stowe on the Wold was a delight that knocked the nearby miniature village at Burton on the Water into touch as far as this child was concerned. Discovering long abandoned breweries was also a pastime I rejoiced in. Any tower construction with an archway became a subject of instant engagement. We would wander in and work out the geography of the building, often assisted by excise markings that remained etched into the paintwork. MR1, and you had located the Maltram. I would harbour dreams of bringing it back to life as a working brewery. Many had been constructed during a Georgian or Victorian era and were charming. With a bit of luck, the brewery house could be located nearby where brewers had lived and breathed their art amidst the trials and tribulations of a brewing year. We are now witnessing an age where there are more breweries in the country than at any time since the end of the 19th century. However, with the greatest respect in the world, I cannot imagine future generations exploring the industrial units that house the stainless steel tanks of today's entrance. Now, that's not to say that they do not produce very fine beer, 
nor that they are lacking in romance. You have only to visit Mark Tranter at Burning Sky to be blown away by the cocktail of passion, innovation, and tradition housed in a 19th century Sussex barn, complete with artisan blending vaults. Uh, we had the Brewery History Society, AGM, uh, in Lewis a couple of years ago, and it was lovely to send them out to look at Mark's uh, new uh, brewery and to compare it with our own. If you're not members of the Brewery History Society, very low membership price, very good journal every three months, well worth signing up. On our own brewery tours, I explain that Harvey's is a trip through the heritage of our industry. A grade two listed building that perpetuates traditional brewing in every sense. I, I get tremendous satisfaction taking people into a hop store where they can see whole pockets of hops uh, and uh, a system where whole hops are still uh, utilized. It comes at a cost. Last year, we spent over 100,000 pounds on maintaining the fabric of the building. Paintwork, joinery, leadwork, stonemasonry, it sometimes seems never-ending. We are also largely hands-on unwilling to place ourselves at the mercy of automation. We believe the human factor is important. And I always say that if I was starting from scratch, I would not design a brewery like this. The truth is, I probably would. I too am an incurable romantic and revel in the continuity of standing at a mash tun in the early hours where generations of brewers have stood before, all with the same pursuit of excellence. Well, what else did my childhood and teenage years teach me about the industry? The post-war years saw a generation of brewers return from military service with a spirit of camaraderie, a sense that they were all in it together. Now, if this seems obvious, it wasn't. Brewers in the early part of the century could be sacked for being seen in the company of a rival brewing room. There were restrictions placed on them accordingly. My father's generation believed that a brewing problem was a shared problem, and they met socially in each other's breweries, exchanging knowledge and experience. And I do believe that if you're going to remain relevant within our industry, you need to embrace it in all its diversity. I have a great respect for any brewer who brings something new to the party. It may not be to my taste, but it should always be treated with respect. We need to remain a broad church, and with more than a nod to our monastic forebears. I firmly believe that the trend of collaborative brews has been a natural extension of this mutual respect, cooperation, and understanding. I also see the industry as being entwined with our allied trades, a term that has sadly disappeared. The Allied Brewery Traders Association had evolved in response to the 1906 licensing bill, a show of solidarity to protect the industry from attack. All trades were allied to the brewing industry. In a post-war era, when there was much talk of the Allies, I saw them as an extension of the expeditionary forces seconded to the brewing industry, a perception enhanced by the fact that many company representatives had distinguished service records and held themselves with military demeanor. There were two splendid Allied traders, one a maltster, one a finings merchant, who would arrive in an ex-war department jeep with one of them standing bolt upright, sounding a hunting horn as they entered the yard. 
Um, it was an age of honor and integrity and, in honesty, a lifestyle that few companies could condone, let alone afford in today's world. Uh, today, the ABTA has been hijacked by the Association of British Travel Agents. We have that splendid BFBI uh, instead. I believe that we should enjoy the closest links with our suppliers. There is a wealth of innovation out there, and it is working to the benefit of us all. Whether it be new brewing plant, new malts, or new varieties of hops, they are adventures to be considered and enjoyed. Now, at this juncture, we might for a moment consider the romance of the hop industry, the factors and the merchants in the borough of London, who at the beginning of my career procured hops from growers and secured contracts uh, from the brewers. Always a lottery for growers, the hop marketing board had been established to regulate supply and demand for the benefit of all. It had been abolished shortly before I became head brewer, but the philosophy stayed with me. We still place forward contracts four years in advance for our hops. And the very first year I was doing this, there was a world surplus of hops, and I was being offered hops at prices far lower uh, four years ahead than I was paying at that point in time. And it was pretty obvious economics that nobody was going to survive on that. So we held prices and we ignored uh, the world forces uh, at, at bay. Call me old-fashioned, but I, I do believe in using local hops in local beer and supporting our domestic hop industry. I've been buying hops from the same families for decades, grown in the counties where our beer is drunk by the local communities. And they are some of the finest hop growers in the world, and beer is our national drink. It was a great thrill to reproduce for the Diamond Jubilee of uh, the coronation, uh, our coronation ale, and to be using the same hop grower that we had used in 1952, 1953, and entering those goldings in the uh, brewing book. At the same time, we don't close our minds to new varieties. We have very fine Cascade grown in Kent, and I use a lot of Andrew Hode Sussex hops, uh, a new variety that he grows at Salehurst uh, near Robertsbridge in Sussex. And They've been growing there for generations. Arthur Young, in his uh, Agricultural Sussex in 1813, says the parish of Salehurst is the best in the county for hops uh, because the soil is kindly to them, especially around the church where it is rich. I think the nitrates had a certain amount. Uh, after school at Cranbrook, surrounded by the hop gardens of the Weald, I went to university at Edinburgh and encountered another fine brewing nation with its own distinctive beers. I remember walking into Bennett's Bar at Toll Cross and asking for a pint of bitter and being told, you know in England now, Jimmy, it's light or heavy. Well, I ordered a pint of light expecting bitter and got a pint of dark mild, but it was very good. Uh, after graduating in 1976, I went to Green King in Bury St. Edmunds as a pupil brewer. It was a marvelous experience, a, a generosity of spirit that nurtured new entrants to the industry with kindness and patience within a family ethos that extended deep into the community. I owe them so much. I also met my future wife there. Our son Edmund was named accordingly. Years later, I was visited by Bernard Tickner, my old production director. He was practically blind and diabetic, insisted on going round the brewery and tasting the beers. 
And while we were in the sample room, he said to me, tell me, Miles, how did you end up at Green King? And I said, you interviewed me, sir. <laughs> did I, he said. I obviously made a great impression at that <laughs> initial encounter. We currently have a, a trainee brewer with us for two years, a dual Australian and UK citizen who's worked in craft brewers in Australia and Canada. Now, I do believe a good teacher continues learning from his pupils. Uh, it's like not imposing your own values on your children, but rather learning from what they develop uh, and taking stock of them. I joined Harvey's in 1980 as third brewer. It was a time when camera was winning over the hearts and minds of drinkers. There was a renaissance of cask-conditioned beer, and we were increasing production at a rate of 10% per annum. I think it is important to stress that Harvey's would not have survived to see this had it not been for two factors. The first was an agreement between Beards Brewery in Lewis and ourselves in 1958 to combine production on one site and affect economies of scale. Now, it may not seem new today. In those days, it was very innovative. Two brewers in great danger of going out of business, one very well equipped, the other not, and we basically combined the production. Beard sent their casks down to Harvey's, which had plenty of surplus capacity. We lowered the unit cost for both brewers. We changed the labels over halfway through the run. Now, it, it really did mean that we survived both breweries, in fact, uh, until Beards, as a pub company, decided to, to sell up. And um, as I say, without that simple economy of scale, we would not be here today. So you do need to adapt to the times. Now, the second factor was a decision to introduce keg beer in line with prevailing consumer preferences in the 1960s. You may think that keg beer is a, a new uh, phase of our development. In fact, it, it's not. We installed in the 1960s the prototype for the first inverted keg filler. It had been designed by uh, Douglas Fox, who said at the time that he'd make his fortune out of this with small brewers, but sadly died a, a week later. All, all we were doing was putting our best bitter into keg, but it captured what was required at that point in time. Keg and bottled beers accounted for 50% of our production, and Sussex Keg Bitter was a resounding success. Uh, a series of awards for our beers and cask, bottle and keg had enabled us to hold our own and win the loyalty of local drinkers. We had broadened our appeal and encompassed a new generation during the swinging 60s. So we were poised to take them with us uh, when the revival of traditional beers gained momentum. A lot of space has been given to our recent rebranding exercise. Ironically, the teal blue was our dominant livery for a quarter of a century between the 1960s and the 1990s. We then took a nostalgic step back during our bicentenary celebrations when heritage and tradition was in vogue before moving back to a far more vibrant presentation that embraced the current times. I maintain that you reinvent yourself roughly every 30 years. There is a lesson to be learned. Enjoy the heritage of the past, but always remain relevant and strive to survive. You can overcome adversity, flood and fire as you encounter those challenges, but no one has a God-given right to sell beer. Innovation is essential, but equally, life often comes full circle, and to my mind, this is strangely reassuring. 
1988, we produced uh, low-alcohol beers on a reverse osmosis plant. Uh, Whitbreads were producing white label, very much in demand. And uh, we, we went down that track. We were the second brewery, I think, to use an RO plant. And low-alcohol beers dipped out of vogue. They've now come back with a vengeance, but we've actually never stopped producing them. When we decided to scrap our kegging plant following the floods in 2000, we did not expect to be replacing it 15 years later. When we decided to retain returnable bottles, we did not envisage the current debate on deposit schemes. In the 1960s, few would have envisaged a revival of cast-conditioned beer. Perhaps I could add one further example that took me by surprise, a chance comment by my wife when we were enjoying a beer at the Malt Cross in Nottingham. It was a beer that had been brewed with citra hops to the fore, and she casually remarked that it reminded her of the lager and lime she had drunk in the early 1970s. <laughs> now, I look back to that era with great fondness, not to the lager and lime, you'll understand, but rather the joy of being in such a gloriously unpredictable industry in the company of so many very dear people, united in the common pursuit of brewing. They seem to transcend the rough and tumble of life with a strange mixture of humor and integrity. One of the dearest men I recall was Alfred Goff, the head brewer of Tamplin's Brewery in Brighton. His portrait still adorns the inside of the Jolly Brewer at Hollingbury. When Tamplin's were acquired by Watney's, or rather Grand Met in the late 60s, Alfred would take great delight in maintaining a vestige of independence. When his beloved Sussex Bitter came under scrutiny and he was instructed to change the recipe to match head office requirements, Alfred took his revenge by stocking Harvey's in his brewery sample room. When visiting dignitaries from the parent company asked why they weren't drinking their own beer, he would simply reply that it was undrinkable. <laughs> Suffice to say, neither Tamplin's nor he survived the takeover. <laughs> we should all adapt to circumstances and the changing face of the industry, but we should always seek to accommodate and preserve what is dearest to our hearts until circumstances conspire to bring them back into vogue. Thank you. The Brewers Journal podcast is a production of Reby Media. Many thanks to Miles Jenner and Harvey's Brewery. We're going to do our best to keep bringing you episodes over the coming weeks, so make sure that you subscribe and head over to brewersjournal.info to keep up with the latest industry developments. Till next time, take care and stay safe.